it feels good to do work that matters. And I've had this wonderful opportunity to do some work that matters. And what I've learned doing it is that everyone wants to do work that matters. It doesn't feel good to just have a job. It feels good to make a difference. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. Well, we've got a very special guest today, Liz Wiseman. We're gonna be talking all things impact players. Now, Liz Wiseman teaches leadership to executives around the world. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, The Multiplier Effect, and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, Rookie Smarts and Impact Players. She's currently the CEO of the Wiseman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley, California. Some of her recent clients include Apple, Disney, Meta, Google, Microsoft, Nike, Salesforce, Tesla, and Twitter. Who hasn't she worked with? And she received the Top Achievement Award for Leadership from Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's top 50 thinkers. She's conducted significant research in the field of leadership and talent development and holds a bachelor's degree in business management and a master's degree in organizational behavior from Brigham Young University. I am delighted to welcome Liz to Unleashed. Liz, welcome to Unleashed. Well, it's good to be here. And Jeff, I wore my Unleashed t-shirt just for the occasion. I see that. And it's the first time ever. And uh, if you're not, uh, for those of you listening in today that are not on YouTube, make sure you go over to the YouTube channel, the Unleashed YouTube channel, as you can see the t-shirt that Liz Wiseman is wearing. So thank you for, uh, for being dressed appropriate for the conversation today. <laughs> Dress for success, I suppose. So I, this is going to be a fun. Uh, this is going to be a fun one, Liz. Uh, at least for me, I hope it is for you. And I know that a lot of our uh, a lot of our audience are very familiar with your work. And in fact, uh, one of our most loyal viewers, uh, he scaled his entire construction company on the book Multipliers. And that he was actually about eight years ago. I guess it would have been now. He was the reason that I first became aware of your work. So it really is an honor to speak with you today. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. And I do love the concept of unleash. I think multipliers is really about how do you unleash the genius on a team and in your organization? And how do you unleash your own capability is so much of the focus of impact players. So I'm thrilled to, to be part of this conversation. Yes, absolutely. I thought we would start off. I, I mean, I was curious about your uh, your earlier beginnings. And I, and I wondered, mm -hmm. of all the things that you could have done with your career, how did leadership end up becoming your primary focus? Well, I, you know, well, okay. So, I mean, if we go back to the beginning, you know, I was probably born bossy and, um, you know, if we go back deep and like psychoanalyze my early childhood experiences, so much of my early family life was about kind of stepping up and taking charge of situations, situations that didn't, um, you know, feel right or go well. I had a bit of a difficult dad. And so I think I just got this really practical leadership experience in my own early years. And then I was off at college and I was getting an undergraduate degree in business finance. And I took Organizational Behavior 321 with Dr. Kerry Patterson, and he's the author of several incredible management books, um, Crucial Conversations and Influencer and Change Anything. And he just lit a fire in me because I, I admired him so much. And then he hired me as an intern. And it's the only time I ever like desperately wanted this job. And I went to go work for him. And I think that's when it became clear that this is work I love doing. And I was interested in doing. And actually I went, I left college trying to get a job in a management training company, but um, 
you know, the company said, well, maybe you should like go get some leadership experience before trying to teach other people how to lead. And Jeff, I thought it was short-sighted of them. Like, wait a minute, this is my calling. This is what I'm, I'm good at. And I am so grateful today that I got that no, because it forced me to go out and get practical experience leaving and spent 17 years at Oracle on their executive team. And now I come at my work as a researcher and executive advisor very differently. Yeah, well, I know I speak for uh, for millions of people when I say that we're very grateful that you channeled that early setback into a motivator. Uh, it also reminds me of a little bit of Michael Jordan, that how his high school coach that cut him from the team must have felt. So had that management training company had made a different decision, what that could have meant for uh, for their organization as well. Well, when I went back and told the president this story about how he had, you know, um, rejected me years earlier, he extended this offer letter to me. <laughs> He's like, "Please, can we hire you?" Now it was really lovely. Uh, it's, that's kind it of a gift. Well, it's kind of neat that you were able to close the loop on that too, because so often those conversations would go, you know, maybe maybe unfinished. So that's neat that you had a chance to uh, to go back to that person. Now, Liz, in terms of your research, I, I know you finished your research for impact players, like literally as COVID was setting in on the world. But I wondered at what point earlier than that, did you start to recognize that this concept of impact players had some legs? Mm. Well, the idea of how people show up and contribute and whether some people get stuck, whether smart, capable, hardworking people get stuck going through the motions where some people end up no smarter, no more capable, no more hardworking, but they end up making a big impact. This idea actually came out of what I call warranty calls. So, you know, I wrote this book, Multipliers, about what leaders can do to bring out people's best thinking, best work, best, you know, full commitment, full contribution. And every now and then I get what I call warranty calls where people call me up and say, hey, I read your book or I heard you speak, or I went to a workshop, or, you know, they got exposed to the ideas, they went out and tried it, and it didn't work. People say, well, I, I didn't tell people what to do, I asked questions, but they didn't say anything, or I didn't say anything, I gave other people space to contribute, and no one steps up, I gave people ownership, people didn't deliver. And so I think of these as warranty calls, people are like, it doesn't work the way you're saying it works. And as I've tried to unpack that with people, like what's going on there. You know, I started to realize that the way that the leader shows up is one factor in how big people can play at work and how big of a contribution and an impact they can have. But the way the contributor shows up matters as well. And maybe another way to put this was, um, I was teaching a, a multipliers workshop. I think it was at Salesforce. And, you know, we're going through all the ideas. And this one guy raises his hand and he said, hey, I want to be a multiplier, but you can't multiply zero. And, you know, I'm like, oh, what is he saying? Is he saying he's got a bunch of dummies on his team? And I'm about to launch into this, essentially this narrative, this monologue about how as a leader, your job is to unleash the capability of your team. And that, you know, like, okay, not everyone's a genius, but everyone brings genius to the table. And your job as a leader is to see it and use it. And I'm about to go down this path with him where I realize he's talking about something very differently. He's saying as a leader, I have to show up with the right mindsets and the right practices, but so do the people who work for me. And that's when I began to really explore, like, what is on the other side of this coin? Yes, leadership matters, but so do the mindsets and practices of each contributor on the team. Yes, that is powerful. And I, and I think that uh, that's an important distinction because as a default, I think we often point towards management gaps in organizations. And there is another side of this equation. Well, yes. And now I, I used to coach high-level hockey and we sort of used to say that good players could overcome bad coaching, but uh, but great coaching couldn't overcome bad players. 
Are you sort of suggesting that an impact player can overcome a bad manager? Well, here's the other kind of form of warranty call that I got around multipliers is when I was doing this research, what I found is that yes, a leader and the way the leader shows up can either have this multiplying or diminishing effect on their team. Absolutely. And I've talked to thousands of people who describe what diminishing leaders do to them. However, there is this strain of contributor that seems to be a little impervious to diminishing that we see that there's, I I think of them as not particularly porous, that diminishing leaders don't seem to have as deep of a effect on them. I might be one of those people, but I think it's owing to my just pure stubborn gene, which is like, darn it, I'm here to contribute and there's nothing you're going to do that's going to stop me from speaking up, speaking out, getting this done. But there does seem to be like a broader trend. There are some people who just show up and play big, even when their leaders are less than stellar. No, that's empowering. Uh, That's really empowering. So I know there's going to be people listening to this episode who wish they perhaps had more direction, had more clarity in the workplace, had a better manager. So I'm glad that it's not entirely dependent upon external sort of stimulus or or locus of control, if you will. Now, there was another thing that surprised me in, in Impact Players, Liz, where you said passion isn't necessarily a prerequisite to be an impact player. Can you explain that a bit more? Hmm. Well, we found that the impact players didn't necessarily gravitate to the work that they were passionate about. They gravitated to the work that was important, and then they worked on it passionately. For them, passion was more of a verb than a noun. In fact, the impact players, their approach was sort of decidedly suppressing some of the passion of their own to, it's like they're heat seeking missiles. Um, So you think about the passionate person who's like, ah, this is important to me. I'm gonna like push this boulder up a hill. I'm gonna like draw attention to this issue and myself. This is what I wanna work on. This is, I'm like hot, you know, headed for this thing. Pay attention to me, 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 me. And then they wonder why no one seems to care about what they care about versus the impact player is a heat seeking missile. Instead of focusing on, here's what's like my hot issue, they're scanning the organization looking for hot spots, hot projects, hot issues, hot topics, hot buttons, and then they're pointing themselves toward that. Um, Essentially, like the most impactful people find what's important to their bosses, their teams, their clients, their stakeholders, and then they make that important to them. And then... If they can use their natural skills and things they're passionate about to further that, that's great. But, you know, you know, when I've shared this distinction with experienced executives or really anyone who's managed more than a month or two, they're like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I am exhausted trying to like f- to fill up the cup of everyone on my team about what they care about and their personal passion. Like I need those people to be passionate about what we as an organization do. But it's not about it's not about suppressing oneself and foregoing the things that you care about. What happens is when you find out what's important to the organization or your boss and you make it important to you, you build you've created value and then you build credibility and you build influence and st- by working on the agenda, you start to earn the right to set the agenda. And you get to start to choose the kind of work you do. And you can start to choose things that you care a lot about. And you end up becoming more influential, not less influential by doing this. Gotcha. So is, are those the common denominators then? The folks that that recognize that making an impact is the way to get more of what they want in the long term? I think absolutely. And I know I experienced this firsthand. You know, I came, you mentioned, how did I get into leadership? You know, I I ended up taking this job at Oracle. This was by far my second choice job. I wanted to go do leadership development. And I ended up working at a software company. And 
there was this opportunity to go interview for this job inside the company. And I'm like, hmm, this group was a training group. They did technical training, but I was really hopeful that their charter would expand because the company's growing like crazy. I was hoping that their charter would expand to include leadership training. So I went there for the interview. I'm answering the questions. I'm now interviewing with the the vice president of the group and I answer his questions. And then it's my chance to kind of give my pitch. And my pitch was, Bob, this company's going so fast. We've got a lot of young technologists getting thrown into leadership positions. They don't know what they're doing. They're wreaking havoc on the organization. Everyone could see it. And truly everyone could see this. Bob could see it. Everyone knew this was a problem. And I'm like, what Oracle needs is a management boot camp, And I would love to help build this. And I fully expected him to say, Liz, you know what? Let's get you to work on that right away. And what he said was, well, like, Liz, we're thrilled to have you join this team, but but your boss actually has a different problem. Your boss has to figure out how to get 2,000 new college graduates up to speed on Oracle technology. And what would be great is if you could help her solve that problem. And I'm like, I, they, you know, what he was saying is like, we need technical trainers, not management trainers. That's not the job I wanted. Wasn't the job I was good at. And I remember having this moment of like, do I just sort of ignore that? Or do I make my case a little bit more convincingly? Do I push for what I want to do? Or do I listen to what he's saying? And point myself toward what is important. Because he was describing the job that needs to be done. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm no technologist. But if that's what the organization needs, I'll do it. So I ramped myself up to be a technical trainer. Stepping away from what I was passionate about. But yet, I was passionate about learning. So I get to use like all that capability there. I'm actually really good at it. And then I start getting bigger and bigger jobs. And then I start to kind of earn the credibility to pick and choose what I want to do. And, and I had so much more influence by being just a little bit humble and making myself useful. So there's, there's definitely a theme of, of curiosity, of humility, of a passion for learning that's there. I mean, the other thing that kind of surprises me is that to be an impact player, you don't necessarily have to have tenure or a bunch of experience in the task or the project that you're being asked to make a difference on. Is that true? Well, that is true. What we found when we asked, so the essence of the research was we asked 170 managers to identify two contributors on their team. Um, Someone who was smart, capable, hardworking, and doing a fine job versus someone who was smart, capable, and hardworking and doing an amazing job adding value, creating extraordinary impact. We called them the impact players. We found that the impact players identified, well, they spanned management level. Sometimes these were frontline individual contributors. Sometimes these were executives um, in the organization, but they were both young and older, more mature in their career. They spanned the age difference. And, you know, I saw so many mature leaders pointed to very young people as the impact players on their team, people they handed extraordinary responsibility to because they were the kind who gets the job done and gets it done well and gets it done in a way that exemplifies the values of the organization rather than kind of tosses them, you know, under the rug. Yeah. And that's a great segue. And now in impact players, you break down employees into three general categories would be the under contributors, the contributors, and then the impact players. And I think for our conversation today, Liz, I want to focus on largely the impact players, of course. How do you spot them? What do they look like? What are their characteristics and traits and mindsets? But then a little bit also about if you have contributors on your team and you're trying to get them to step up, or perhaps if you recognize that you might be more on the contributor side after reading the book or listening to this conversation and you want to step up and be recognized as an impact player, I think that's where I kind of want to take the conversation. And you've narrowed it down to five key traits. And I wondered if you would sort of talk about each of those traits a little bit to give us a a, a better understanding at a high level of those. Absolutely. And the, the traits are really how people respond to certain situations. So when 
you know, if I kind of pulled back at the highest level, the difference between the ordinary contributor and the impact player is how they respond to uncertainty and ambiguity and chaos. You know, the profile of the ordinary contributor is, you know, these are people who do their job well. They're, they're smart, they're capable, they're focused, they stay focused, they take responsibility, they carry their weight on teams. And they're absolutely stellar colleagues and contributors in ordinary times. But when the environment starts to get a little bit uncertain, where there's ambiguity, where it's not clear what the job is, it's not clear who's in charge, it's like things are just coming at you from all random angles. Things are changing rapidly around you. That's when the impact players really excel. Um, that's where they sort of earn their title as impact players. The first situation is messy problems, problems without clear owners. And what we find is in those situations, the ordinary contributor, they, they do their job while the impact player is doing the job that needs to be done. Figuring out what's important, what's important in this moment and, and going and making that their job. The second difference is how they deal with unclear roles. You know, when you're in a highly matrixed organization or there's lots of collaborators or just that meeting where you look around and you see eight wonderful colleagues, but you can't figure out who's the boss of that meeting. You know, in these situations when roles are unclear, the ordinary contributor is waiting for direction. They're waiting for someone to tell them, oh, Liz, you're in charge. While they're waiting for direction, the impact players are just taking charge. They're stepping up. They're leading. They lead without authority. They lead without, in some ways, permission. They just fill that leadership void, but they're not the kind of colleagues who take charge and have to always be in charge. They step up and lead, but when that vacuum has been filled, they step back and they follow their colleagues with the same energy with which they lead their colleagues. They have this very fluid orientation to leadership. Um, the third trait or really situation is how they deal with um, you know, unforeseen obstacles where something really hard, unpleasant, out of your control, like a big boulder drops in your way. You know, the ordinary contributor, they take ownership, but when the big boulder drops, something that's too big for them you know, to get past, they tend to escalate up. Hey boss, we got a problem. And they hand it off to higher ups, which seems like the rational, responsible thing to do. The impact players, they just hold on to ownership longer. They're finishers. They get it all the way done. You know, and it's not the kind of finish where they finish alone. And in many ways, instead of handing it off to their boss, they just stay the boss and they get their bosses working for them. Like rather than, oh, boss, this is a hard one. Let me hand it to you. It's like, okay, this is a hard one. Here's what I need from you. You know, I need you to talk to that person. I need our, you know, president to go and run interference over here. In some ways, they're bosses of their bosses. The fourth difference is how they deal with um, moving targets where the environment's changing, situations, budgets are changing. Um, while other people are focused on the goals that they were given, the impact players are adapting, they're adjusting, they're kind of like um, they're delta seeking, like, ooh. I, I like to think of it as that sense of where you wake up in the morning and instead of just continuing the work you were doing from the day before, it's like waking up in the morning and saying, hmm, while I was sleeping, I bet the world changed. Like, let me scan my environment and figure out like what's new, what's different, and how do I adapt to make sure my work is continually relevant. And the last difference is how they deal with unrelenting demands. You know, the, the ordinary contributor tends to make hard work harder, whereas the impact players, they just make work lighter. Not by doing other people's work for them, but just being easy to work with, being low maintenance, uh, bringing a sense of ease and lightness and and often levity to situations where hard work just feels easy around these people.
Yeah, so you did a good job of clarifying those five. So number one was do the job that's needed. Uh, two was step up and step back. Three was finish stronger. Four was ask and adjust. And five was make work light. Are impact players, are, by the time they reach the workforce, are they already this way and we just have to, hopefully we hire them or, or do they evolve once they join the workforce? Because in some of the stories that you shared, like Liz, it sounded like you were kind of wired to be that way once you got to Oracle and not the other way around. Oh, well, you know, I, yes, and, yes, and. I, I think there, there, when you look down at kind of the more psychological makeup of the impact players, what you will find are people with a strong internal locus of control. Like the sense that I affect my environment as much as my environment affects me that, you know, when you're in a situation, there are people who say, you know what, I could probably do something about this unpleasant situation. There are people with a strong sense of agency, like, no, I should be in control of my work, not somebody else. Um, there are people with a sense of like efficacy, like I can make a difference. I can, you know, my work matters. And it is true that some people enter the workforce with these mindsets. And maybe some people learned them at their mother's knee. Other people might've had to learn it through survival. <laughs> um, but it doesn't, the story doesn't end there. Like the way the lead, okay. So now we're back to the role that the manager plays. Like the way the manager shows up will determine whether someone can continue to be an impact player or what about all those people on the margin? I mean, I very much remember my first manager at Oracle. He like gave me this kind of hard thing to do. And then he just didn't do it for me. And he didn't tell me, well, come check with me. He just let me contribute. And so I think as leaders, we either amplify that orientation. People go with, and, and three-year-olds like have this orientation, like I'm in charge. Like, you're not the boss of me. Like, I can do this. I got this. And it can get squashed out of people. But managers can either amplify that, or I think a manager can also help people learn that mindset by giving them like the safety they need to, to, to hold on to an obstacle without being punished for it. And there's we could go into that in more depth, but you know, um, if a manager provides this combination of safety and stretch, then it gives people a chance to show up this way and to build those mindsets that maybe they don't have natively, but you build a few wins and you get a few, you know, kind of out of girls, out of boys along the way, you start to, to adopt this mentality. Yeah. So safety, stretch, and some feedback there, some praise and some guidance. Sounds like it's important. Uh, Liz, that's helpful. And I, I also I would love it if we could provide people with some tips or some tactics on like, and I'm, what I'm envisioning is an employee listening to this conversation right now and, and questioning, I wonder if I am an impact player and I don't want to leave any doubt. So I want to start ensuring that I show up that way. And I wonder if there's a simple tip or a tactic within each of those five traits that would be helpful. So for example, and you know, do the job that's needed. How would an employee start to show up more that way? What would be a tip that you have? Well, let me give you two, I think, fairly simple tips. Number one is figure out what the agenda is. And that's about paying attention to hot buttons, hot topics, like be heat seeking. Figure out what the agenda is and then get yourself on that agenda. Let me give you a quick example. Um, I was doing a webinar and in the webinar was um, this wonderfully talented young man. He was a worship leader at a big church. So he worked for the senior pastor of this church and he came to me after the session. He said, Liz, I don't think I'm on the agenda. I'm like, well, what makes you think that? He goes, oh, every week I send an email note to our senior pastor telling him what I've done that week. And this is a this is someone who's, you know, talented and hardworking and, you know, takes a lot of pride in his work as a worship leader. And, and he goes, but the pastor, I hear nothing from him. I don't think I'm on the agenda. I'm like, okay, let me give you just 
a little reframe on those weekly emails. I said, in those weekly emails, instead of sending a big long list of what you've done, because he probably doesn't care in some ways. I mean, I love this example because he's a pastor. This boss is a pastor. He's supposed to care, you know, but I said, I want you to just send two things. Number one, would you just restate or state what you understand to be the agenda of the organization? Like what's important? You know, like, oh, my understanding is what's important right now is da, 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 da. Number two, I want you to describe what you're doing to further that agenda. That's it. Just describe those two. Because what it's saying is, I understand the agenda. And number two, I'm working on that agenda. He sends that email note. (laughs) I hear back right away. He's like, wow, well, that was a big difference in response. Because number one, I got a response. And number two, I got praise and validation and feedback and encouragement and coaching because now he's working on what's important to his boss. And it literally happened right away. In the span of one well-structured email, the whole perception of how he's viewed by his manager uh, uh, changed. You know, and, and it can be so easy to do. I remember once I was doing some work for a client. I was going to be speaking at one of their big meetings. And I listened to them, did all the intake, and then I wrote up my outline for my speech. And they wanted to see that. And I was sharing that with them. But I decided to leave in there, like, I don't know, a list of like 10 bullet points of what I heard to be important to them. And I was going to take it out because I'm like, oh, that's just my information. They just wanted to see my outline. But I left it in. And I remember their response. They're like, wow, you get us. You understand that's exactly what's important to us. And then they're like, you do whatever you want because you understand what we're trying to accomplish. It's very powerful when we say like, I hear, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, employees want to be seen and heard, but you know who else wants to be seen and heard? (laughs) Your bosses. They want to know that you get what's okay. So that's one thing that you can do. Now, a second thing you can do to make sure that you're doing the job that's needed is to know at any given time, what is the job to be done right now? Like a lot of us know our job. We have a job description or role. But when you get into ambiguous situations, I think we need to say, what's my real job? Like, okay, maybe I'm the program manager responsible. Like my real job is making sure we don't have project delays. That's my real job. And when we can understand, I don't know, like a a first or second derivative of what our job description is, like, what is it really? Then it helps us to know how to go after things that are important. Because generally, unless you've got kind of an evil variety boss, your job, your boss doesn't want you to do your job as it's described in the description as much as they want you to do the real job. Liz, could those derivative descriptions or should they be put into the actual job description if we're doing a good job of those on the performance management side? Well, I think so. And I think this is where managers can provide um, really important clarity, which is like, okay, welcome to company ABC. Here's your job, da-da-da-da-da, train people up. That's your job. But let me tell you what your real job is. Your real job is to make sure that customers renew their software licenses, or your real job is to make sure that we aren't surprised by any feedback, you know, like, and helping people know what the real job is, is I think incredibly valuable, right? Because then it gives like, okay, now I know why my um, raison d'etre, like why I exist on the org chart, where my value is. And now I can be rangy and go after this and go after that. No, like that's, no, don't fuss over that. That's not, that's not the real job. Yeah. Well, and what I like about that is clarity and uh, impact. And both of those things are heightened. If you could, if you could go back and do that. Uh, Liz, what about step up and step back? What would, you know, what would be a, a tactic or a tip you'd have for an employee there to show up more that way? Well, one would be to raise your hand um, and be willing to lead. Now, a lot of people are, some of us do that naturally. Like if I'm in a group and nobody's volunteering to lead, I'll be like, okay, I'm willing to be the boss of this. But a lot of people are terrified. One, because they don't know if their participants 
their colleagues want them to do that. But if we raise our hand, then it's like, well, now we've signed up maybe for more responsibility. And, and I think when organizations treat leadership as a temporary assignment, and when we see leadership as a temporary assignment, like, you know, I don't know if I want to take on more work or more this, but you know what, I'm willing to lead the next 60 minutes of conversation. That is incredible value. But if you want to kind of raise your hand to lead, think of it as a short-term assignment, not a long-term assignment. And if you're worried if people are going to think you're stepping on toes or um, being assumptive or making a land grab, just get permission to do this. So there's some very simple language we can use. Um, you know, if you're in one of these leaderless situations, all you have to do is say, would it be helpful if I guided our conversation for the next 60 minutes? No one's going to think you're land grabbing like, oh, okay, now I'm trying to make you look bad. It's just for the next 60 minutes. Hey, I'm willing to take this issue over the next two weeks until we can figure out what to do. Then people go, oh, whew, Liz isn't trying to be the boss of the entire world. She's here to serve. And that brings us back to what you said earlier. The found, One of the foundational uh, character traits is humility. Because you have to be very humble to step up and step back and, and courageous as well. So that, no, that's, that's helpful. And I, I think I was surprised to learn that that is a key characteristic of an impact player. Because I think conventional wisdom would lead us to believe an impact player is always at the helm or always wanting to take the leadership role. And that's just not the case. It's not. And, you know, one way to look at it is it takes humility to step back. And I want to reframe that a little bit. I do think it takes humility, but I actually think it takes extraordinary confidence. See, it takes confidence to raise your hand and say, I can lead us. I can lead us in this initiative. I can lead this conversation. But to do that, we have to have confidence in ourselves that we can lead. But to step back, we have to have confidence in two things. Number one, we have to be confident that somebody else like if I hand the baton to someone else, they can run fast too. So it's expressing confidence in our colleagues. And it's also expressing confidence that there will be other things for us to lead. Like some people don't want to ever let go of the baton. They always want to be the boss because if they're not, then where's my value? And am I dispensable now? I don't think I've ever viewed it that way. That You've reframed following followership for me you've reframed or you've reframed stepping back a little bit and not having to be the the center of the decision or the owner of the project i don't think i've ever thought about it as being a confidence issue but you're absolutely right and i think it also is not only does it take confidence it's an expression of confidence in our colleagues and also an expression of oh like they're you know that the, there's important work for me I don't have to be at the helm of everything important at every moment in time. And people who work that way, we don't like working for them. Like, I'll tell you one thing I'm an expert on is diminishing bosses and people who have to be in control of everything have a diminishing effect and people hate working for them. They hate working yeah. for them. Yeah. Hallelujah. What about on the finish stronger piece? So how does an employee ensure that they're measuring up when it comes to finishing stronger? Well, I like to think of this as getting a statement of work. So I work today as an outside consultant. And, you know, when you're an outside consultant and someone gives you a piece of work, you generally don't just get started on it. You're like, hmm, let me understand what that piece of work looks like. And companies often require a statement of work. And the things that go into a statement of work are like, well, what's the work? What's the how do we know if that person's done a good job? And like, what's the completion criteria, right? That's a pretty standard thing. If somebody delegates a piece of work to you, put you in charge of something, do not start it until you have a statement of work. And I don't mean a written document signed and, you know, notarized. What I mean is an understanding of what great looks like. Let me tell you what, um, so I'm also sort of an expert in micromanaging and the micromanaging boss and, you know, bosses that say, Hey, you know what? Hey, you know, Marco, why don't you take the lead on this? And then pretty soon they're like, Nope, Nope, Nope. I've got it back to me. They like kind of yank work back. People hate this. Well, 
the reason why managers step in and micromanage and like rescue people is they have in their head some vision of what a good piece of work looks like, but they've never communicated that to the other person. And so they're jumping in, taking over, pulling it back. The other person fails. They're the hero. Here's how you can avoid that is when someone gives you a piece of work to do, do not take the bait until you understand what does a great job look like? How will I know that I've done a brilliant job at this? Oh, well, you'll know that because we'll be in Gartner's magic quadrant on the, you know, the software analysis, or we'll be on the vendor list, or you'll know it when, and most managers like know what that looks like. They're just too lazy to tell you, or they think that you are a mind reader. So ask what does great look like? And number two, ask, what does done look like? How will I know I'm done with this piece of work? Oh, well, when I can forward that report off to the purchasing department without any edits or... So if you know what great and done looks like, that will allow you to finish stronger because now you know what where the finish line is and like what the... What do you get a trophy for? Well, and there's elements of managing up there, aren't there, Liz? Because I can see how often something is delegated without clarity. Asking that question of your manager is going to cause them to think deeper about what done looks like as well, because they probably won't have, oftentimes anyways, as good an understanding as they will after their team member asks them that question. So that's, um, that's uh, brilliant. What, what about ask and adjust? How is that different from uh, from sort of what you just said? Because it seems like there's some elements of asking and adjusting there, perhaps. But what does ask and adjust look like specifically? Well, adjust, ask and adjust is about it being like a thermometer and taking in readings and reading the room. It's it's asking for guidance before someone can give you feedback. Like, okay. Is that what you're looking for? Do you need more of this? Is this still important? It's making sure that you know if, you know, the way that a thermostat takes in readings, okay, the room is too hot, let me cool it off. Or, ooh, now the room is too cold, let me warm it up. I love the thermostat metaphor on this because the thermostat doesn't apply a value judgment. Like, oh, room, you were too cold. Like, that's terrible. Like, now we have to do more heat or or vice versa. It's just a matter of fact. So um, it's it's asking, was that report what you needed? Um, what could I have done to to make that easier to read? You know, it's asking for guidance so that you can make little micro corrections to your work. And if you do this, you will always be on mark. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. And then the last one. So make work light. How does an impact player make work light? Well, it's about being easy to work with. Okay. Well, first of all, Jeff, let me, let me talk a little bit about what it's not. So the impact players in the study didn't make work light by taking other people's work. Oh, you know, let me see if I can help. What can I take off your plate? What can I do for you? Oh, she seems busy. I'll do that. They're not over volunteering. They're not dumping grounds for work. They are easy to work with. It's about um, being low maintenance. It's doing things like spending hours and hours creating this report and then sending it off to someone and just thinking to say, you know what, let me just highlight the three important ideas in that report to make it easy for someone to get value from my work. Like the smallest thing that we can do that might take 30 seconds, but creates tremendous value for other people. It's the person who, when they forward you a huge email chain, they don't just say, hey, boss, what do you think? <laughs> They're like, the email chain is debating this issue. We've got to decide if we're going to you know, use yellow or purple on our website. You know, what's your point of view? I need it by Wednesday. Oh, well, you just saved me having to like sort through that, but it took just the smallest amount of effort. It's making meetings as short as they can be. It's about staying away from politics, drama. It's it's eschewing the phantom workload so that people can use all of their energy on the real workload. 
I've heard you talk about employees in a workplace as being on a bell curve. And so on the, you know, the, the, left, uh, the left end of the bell curve would be your under contributors. On the right side would be your high impact players. And then that group in the middle, the contributors, if you're a manager of an organization, how are some ways that you can recognize what I would call diamonds in the rough, potential impact players? Mm. Well, I think you, rather than like, how do you recognize individuals? I want to, I want to back off then come to that. I think the more important thing managers can do is recognize that there are far more would-be impact players than meet the eye. There are the people who are obviously taking charge, stepping up, playing big, making a difference. But if I've learned anything in this research is that people come to work every day desperately wanting to make a difference and wanting to be fully utilized. And people describe being fully utilized as a little bit tiring, but totally exhilarating, rewarding, fulfilling. And people describe the state of being underutilized as draining, frustrating, tiring, demoralizing, exhausting. And and I think that is what I have learned is that people want to be used at their fullest. And it's very easy to look at a, a, a talent pool and say, okay, I've got a few superstars and everyone else, like, I don't know, they're just showing up and phoning it in. I would encourage managers, like when you see that, to say, Liz would tell me they don't want to be doing that. They may have learned it. They may have had their hands slapped by previous leaders. They've learned, you know what, just show up, do your job, don't volunteer. That's dangerous. Just stick to your goals. That's safer. And I would think, I would encourage managers to say like, what do I need to do as a leader to allow people to work in the way they want to work? They want to be difference makers. They want their work to matter. They don't want to be a box on an org chart. You know, they want to do the real job. And and I think sometimes when we look at it this way, it allows people like to find a pathway to working like an impact player without training programs and heavy interventions. Just like, how do I allow people to work in the way they really want to work? Well, and there's a there's a mindset of the manager there. I think that you're hitting on that's just so crucial. Is it's almost a po- like assuming positive intent or approaching all of your people as though they want to make an impact. I think I think that's a beautiful way to frame that. Uh, you framed a number of things for me really really well today, uh, and, and including there was another surprise in your book that I, I wouldn't mind if you would touch on, and it was this notion that failure to change uh, often comes from too much ambition, not an absence of it. That surprised me. Can you explain that? Well, Jeff, this might just be, you know, this just might be me rationalizing my laziness. So, um, but what I have found is that when people are ambitious about change, you know, and it happens when we read a book, we sit in on a keynote, we're like buzzed up, like, ooh, we tend to aspire high, we aspire big, and then we fail to meet our own expectations, or we get so many change initiatives going that we can't sustain them all. And we drop all of those, those balls. Like I deeply believe in people's ability to improve and to change and to grow. But I think when we think of, but like one is the magic number, like I can do anything hard, but I can't do three hard things at the same time. I can do one hard thing at the same time. And I think most people are like this. And so, you know, if we get past this need to like, okay, well, I'm going to be this, I'm going to make work glad. I'm going to do all of these things. I'm going to be ambitious. And instead we are just a little bit more cautious, more lazy. And we find one thing and then we shore that up because every productive habit has sitting behind it, powerful mindsets. And when we're adopting new mindsets, like 
gee, if I raise my hand to lead, my colleagues will support me leading them. Like for some people, that's a fragile belief because they've got evidence against that. Like for me to sort of build this belief, I've got to try something and have it work out. And I have to build this body of evidence. And for a while, our new beliefs are like little um, sapling trees where, you know, they've got a frame around them and they're sort of like tied up. They've got that, you know, neon ribbon around them until they get strong enough to stand on their own. But like try something small and then build evidence that actually this is a better way of working. You know, when I don't just do my job and I do the job that's needed, like I get a lot more praise, appreciation, value, and influence that comes from doing that than just putting my head down and doing my job. No, that that makes sense. Um, I want to talk to you about gender imbalances in the workplace and how that affects the ability to show up as an impact player. Now, we had an author on a previous episode, Lisa, um, Lisa Vesterland, who wrote a book, uh, co-wrote a book called The No Club. And it was, it was really centered around research that's, um, that's emerging, in particular from professional firms, where females are taking on a higher proportionate of tasks that would be deemed by the organization as important, but not really necessarily furthering the goals of the firm and certainly not being recognized as promotable tasks. So I couldn't help but then draw the link that if if women are taking on a disproportionate amount of these non-promotable tasks, that's going to hinder their ability to become an impact player. And I was wondering about your, your view of that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is such a complex topic to try to sum up a point of view on I think we, okay, so, at, you know, being a woman and having worked in the workforce, I'll, I'll look at it from this. I think it's easy to sign up for those kinds of tasks. And those are the kinds of tasks that are often given to women in the workforce. And I th- think it starts with us being willing to go where there is heat and to, to go work on hot topics, hot project, hot takes, which there's more heat there, but there's also more success there. So I think we have to be careful about what we allow ourselves to be either relegated to or where we prevent ourselves from saying, I'll go work on what's hot. Um, The thing that I will tell you is that when we work on the agenda of the organization, our work doesn't get harder. It actually gets easier because when you're working on what's important, meetings happen. They get scheduled. They don't get delayed. Budget flows. You get coaching. You get visibility. It actually becomes an easier way of working, but it means we have to be willing to say, I'll work where the action is. Um, The second thing I think of is we have to, I'm going to focus on the contributor side of this. I think we have to make sure that our work, particularly if we do work that is in the background, we have to make sure that our work doesn't go unnoticed. There are a lot of people that I would kind of categorize as missing impact players. They're thinking this way, they're working this way, they want to work this way, but they are either working behind the scenes or they maybe come from an underrepresented population where they kind of are instantly invisible. And in that case, if we're in one of those categories or do behind the scenes work, we have to do a little extra work to make sure our work is visible. My favorite metaphor for this is a great waiter. So when you go out to a nice restaurant and you've got a like a really great waiter, they know their job is to serve and to stay in the background, that they are not on display. The food is on display. The dining experience is on display. Their job is to stay in the background, make things happen. But a good waiter doesn't just stay in the background. They do little things to let you know the value that they're providing you like, oh, you know, I I noticed you're trying to get to the theater. I went ahead and put a rush on this to make sure that you're out of here 10 minutes before the hour. Oh, you know what? I I brought you a couple extra plates because I have a feeling you're going to want to share this. Oh, you know what? We've comped that. I put a rush on this. They're letting you know what they're doing in the background on your behalf 
to serve. And they often do this a little more, but right before they bring you the check and right before you decide the tip. And what they're doing is they're just raising your awareness of the work they're doing that would otherwise go unseen. This is one of the things that we as women can do. And I don't, it doesn't have to be a lot of extra work, but to let people know, oh, by the way, you know what? I've handled these 10 issues. You don't even need to think about them because I've handled them rather than just handle them and then be upset that nobody values what you're doing. It's just like a good waiter. Well, that is some high level attunement right there. And uh, you're making me think of some ways I'm able to start using that myself. But uh, I, I appreciate you sharing your perspectives. I know that that's a big topic. I know there's lots of time we could spend on it, but I really do appreciate you providing your, your, uh, you know, your insight and, and, and your lens uh, into that, Liz. Jeff, into that, Liz. could I share one more perspective on this? Please. Which is, Please. those are things that we can do as contributors, but... The fundamental job of making sure talented, smart, hardworking people don't go underutilized and underappreciated, that job sits with the managers of the organizations. And like managers, this is your job to spot talent and spot people who want to contribute and step up and give them the opportunity and the visibility that comes with it. Because it's very easy for us to go where there's problems and where there's loud voices and underappreciate people who are doing the hygiene work of the organization, making things happen in the background. Yeah, thank you for making the time to, uh, to highlight that. That's really important. Uh, Liz, looking back, when you started at Oracle in 1988, did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine that you would end up making the impact that you have so far? No. Not, no, absolutely not. What does that meant to you? You know, I went to Oracle for a position, to be a position holder, essentially. And, you know, I've got opportunities to be a big difference maker at Oracle. I remember the, the day I got the invite. This is after I had left Oracle after 17 years, and they were holding this meeting, a lot of great people had left Oracle and gone on to start other companies like Mark Benioff of Salesforce. You know, he used to be at Oracle. We were kids there together and lots of things. And it was like the Oracle 100 club of the hundred people who had shaped and built Oracle. And I remember being in this group thinking, wow, I think because I said yes to every hard thing that was given to me. And like back to that moment of like, do I argue because that I want to go build a management training program, or do I go be a technical trainer because that's where the need is? Like those little decisions created this incredible opportunity to go help build an amazing company and, and then to go out and that afforded me the opportunity to go do research and write some books. And then people read the books and then like, it feels good to do work that matters. And I've had this wonderful opportunity to do some work that matters. And what I've learned doing it is that everyone wants to do work that matters. It doesn't feel good to just have a job. It feels good to make a difference. Well, and yeah, thank you for answering that. And I want to thank you also just for the incredible work that you do continue to do and, 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 I'm sure you're going to be, you're going to have lots of other uh, interesting things for us to watch for in the coming years. And, you are very clearly in this conversation alone demonstrate what I would call a live what you teach. Like you, you show up exactly the way that you write about, exactly the way that you encourage other people to show uh, to show up about. And I think I, it it was sort of aware uh, I was aware of it, but not as much as I am now. Is that you've not only brought in leadership research, but it's so much of it is just based on your own personal experience. And I don't think it I don't think books are often written that way where it's the personal experience confirming the research then that you've gone out and found and so you're a, a living breathing example of of what can happen for somebody if they just follow the stories the lessons the tips and the tools that you espouse so liz this has been a, tre a tremendous conversation thank you so much for being here today it's absolutely my pleasure and thank you for the work you're doing back to like unleashing talent, intelligence, capability, energy inside of organizations. So thank you.
Thank you for that. We're gonna have to start giving away t-shirts. You've given us a merchandise idea now. Now, Liz, where can people uh, track you down and find you on the World Wide Web? Well, uh, you can find me and uh, my team at thewisemangroup.com. And I'll emphasize the Wiseman Group because wisemangroup.com is an interior design firm in San Francisco that I guarantee you has a more interesting and beautiful website than we do. But you'll find all sorts of design stuff there. But on thewisemangroup.com, what we do and links to all the books, Multipliers, Rookie Smarts, Impact Players, Blah, blah, blah. Well, we're going to have to hit up Wiseman Group for some, uh, for some advertising dollars now after that. Amazing shout out. So Liz, thanks again uh, for being here. And to everybody tuning in today, I hope you can take what you've heard and what you've learned from Liz and go start making an impact in your own world with your own organization and the people that you're surrounded by. And until next time, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at UnleashResults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.